Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know what that certified organic label on your food really means? Learn all about that label and why organic is worth it at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be making organic yogurt and honored to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A new survey suggests that the most extreme projections for global temperature rise are likely to be correct. Some of these scenarios that we look at in these models are really quite alarming. It's a whole different world. The character of snow, of sea ice, the Arctic changes considerably. And that doesn't even touch on the question of adaptation and whether various parts of the environment that we live in are going to be able to adapt to such a sudden shift in temperature zones. What that might mean for the future. Also, thermal pictures reveal where heat is leaking out of houses. The different colors will point your eye right to uh, where your dollars are more or less flying out of your building. It could be the spur that makes people insulate their homes. We'll have that story and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The scientific consensus holds that climate change is upon us, but there are many different projections as to how fast it's happening and how hot it might get. Now, a new study has found that the most alarming global warming estimates may in fact be the most accurate. Joining us is one of the report's lead authors, John Fasulo, a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So what are the various projections that have been made about the extent of global warming? Well, we have a range of about 3 degrees Fahrenheit to 8 degrees. To make that understandable, the the basic question we're trying to answer is whether or not uh, New York City becomes more like Richmond, Virginia in the future, or whether it becomes more like Atlanta, Georgia. Now, when you say 3 to 8 degrees, we're talking Fahrenheit, we're talking Celsius. We're talking Fahrenheit, and we're talking by 2100, so of course there's the capacity for further warming after that, or if we take action to curb climate change, uh, less warming eventually. So why is there such a large range uh, between these estimates? Well, it all relates to how clouds change in the models. The largest source of uncertainty is how clouds will change in a warming environment. Some models show that clouds will increase in extent in a warmer climate and reflect more sunlight back to space, while other models show clouds will actually decrease in extent and let more sunlight into the system. So how did you take uh, cloud cover into account for your analysis? Evaluating clouds in models is difficult. The challenge, because our observations of clouds are not too good, and then comparing those observations to models isn't straightforward. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison. So we tried to skirt this whole issue by looking at the environment in which clouds occur rather than clouds themselves, things like relative humidity in the environment. And over the past 10 years, we've had NASA satellites that have observed relative humidity on a global scale throughout the atmosphere. And so we've been able to take those observations and ask the question, which models actually reproduce the relative humidity variations that we see more accurately? Which of the projections ended up being the most accurate? Well, it turns out that there's a set of models that is generally on the low end of the spectrum for projecting the future that uh, does a very poor job in resolving these basic interactions that we see in the observations. There are these areas of the tropics called the dry zones, and and we think of tropics as being very moist. But in fact, once you get away from the surface in the tropics, most of the tropics is actually very dry. As these dry zones expand over time, you can think of it as as an iris of the climate system, that that iris opens up 
and the amount of clouds decreases, therefore letting more sunlight into the system and adding to additional warming. There is a set of models that's generally doing this very well, and those tend to be on the higher range of the spectrum for future projections. Which models are those? One is from the UK Met Office, one is from NCAR, where I work in Boulder, Colorado, and then one is from Japan. Now, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is made up uh, literally of thousands of scientists from around the world, the models that they have accepted have consistently underestimated the extent of warming. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think um, you know, that body tends to be fairly apolitical and is hesitant to make a judgment as to which models are more reliable unless there's some very sound scientific basis for doing so. So they tend to weight all the models evenly, even though within the science community we know that some of the models are better than others. Um, and so this is an attempt to provide an objective measure as to which models are doing the best. And, and therefore, maybe we should screen out a few of the models before we uh, make a projection of what the future holds. What are the prospects of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change taking your research and applying it to their next series of reports, which come next year? Well, they have included my analysis in their uh, next report, and so it'll be up to the authors as to how they incorporate that information. It's a very difficult problem. It's been around for 30 years, and they're going to be hesitant to make any bold proclamations based on a single study, and I think they should be. I think that science generally uh, works by consensus and an evolving understanding of the issues. And so this will be one piece of evidence that they consider, but really there needs to be a broader effort across the scientific community to improve models and create a uh, more complete picture as to what the, uh, the possible future may hold. Based on your study, how hot do you think the world is going to get? We feel that the upper half of the range of uh, 5 degrees Fahrenheit to 8 degrees Fahrenheit is probably most likely by 2100. But a lot of that warming is really up to us as well. How much are we going to emit into the atmosphere and how strongly are we going to force the climate system? And, and that is something that we can control and um, we really should make it a focus. What would the world be like 5 degrees hotter? Some of the scenarios that we look at in these models are really quite alarming. It's a whole different world. Uh, the character of snow, of sea ice, uh, the Arctic changes uh, considerably. And that doesn't even touch on the question of adaptation and whether various parts of the environment that we live in are going to be able to adapt to such a sudden and uh, really large shift in temperature zones. What do you hope comes out of this research? Well, we have two main messages, and one is, from a policy standpoint, we really need to consider the best science and forging the best policy for dealing with global warming. And it's certainly upon us, and it's going to continue to, uh, to get worse. Putting our heads in the sand doesn't help us prepare for the future that we're living into. Um, the other message that from our study is to model in communities and to uh, give a message as to how best to improve models so that we can better serve the needs of society. What's it like to work on climate research in a nation where there's been so much well-funded skepticism against this concept? It's a challenge, and um, I think most of the scientists who work in the field have a sense that eventually the truth will win out. But what is frustrating is that we are in some ways racing against the clock. If we keep emitting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and then wait to deal with it, we're going to look at greater impacts overall from sea level rise and weather extremes. And so... The more we delay action, the more expense we have to deal with instead of dealing with it inexpensively up front and as soon as possible. John Fasulo is a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Steve. In his first press conference after re-election, President Obama was asked about climate change, a topic that never came up in any of the campaign debates. I am a firm believer that climate change is real. 
that it is impacted by uh, human behavior and carbon emissions. And as a consequence, I think we've got an obligation to future generations to do something about it. But the president said comprehensive action can't come at the cost of jobs. There's no doubt that for us to take on climate change in a serious way uh, uh, would involve uh, making some tough political choices. And, you know, understandably, I think the American people right now have been so focused and will continue to be focused on our economy and jobs and growth that, you know, if the message is somehow we're going to ignore jobs and growth simply to address climate change, I don't think anybody's going to go for that. I won't go for that. Well, whether or not the American people will go for it, climate change will not go away on its own. Just as Republicans chose to ignore the projections that their presidential candidate would lose this year, many Americans are choosing to ignore the projections that the global climate is headed for dire straits. At least that's the opinion of David Roberts, staff writer for grist.org. Perhaps the most striking thing about the recent presidential election is how predictable it was, or to put it another way, how predicted it was. From the moment Mitt Romney was chosen as the Republican candidate, the polls showed that Obama was on track for a narrow win in most swing states. For all the drama of the campaign, that polling remained remarkably stable, as reflected in the models of poll aggregators like the now-famous statistician Nate Silver. By the time Election Day rolled around, Silver showed Obama with an almost 90% chance of winning. Yet on the day before the election... One-time Reagan speechwriter and longtime conservative pundit Peggy Noonan wrote a column predicting a Romney victory. Her evidence? I quote, All the vibrations are right. Noonan was not alone. Dozens of conservative pundits predicted a Romney win, even a Romney landslide, dismissing models like Silver's as scientific gobbledygook, the overconfidence of pointy-headed nerds. Well, you know how that turned out. To the great shock of the conservative intelligentsia and, reportedly, the Romney campaign itself, the results reflected the projections of political scientists and pollsters. The lesson here is twofold. First, the scientific method works. What Nate Silver has is not some superior ideology or truer faith. It is simply applied mathematics and reason, an approach that allows him to look past his personal desires and prejudices. And secondly, doing what Nate Silver does and what scientists strive to do is extraordinarily difficult. Humans have an astonishing capacity for self-deception. We find reasons to believe what we want to believe, even if those reasons amount to little more than vibrations. But as we saw on Election Day, sometimes reality can come along and snap the spell of wishful thinking. It happened the week before Election Day, too. That's when a supercharged storm slammed into the East Coast, leaving hundreds of thousands without homes or power. Sandy brought a heavy dose of reality and served as a kind of exclamation point on a year filled with droughts, wildfires, and floods, the hottest year ever recorded. According to climatologists, it's just a taste of what's to come. Recently, scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research compared a range of climate forecasts to observed trends in cloud cover. What they found is that the most pessimistic models have produced the most accurate predictions. 
Those models show us on track to raise average global temperatures by as much as 8 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. That's more than twice the level scientists have identified as the threshold of serious danger, high enough that some scientists doubt whether human civilization can survive it. That is the grim news being brought to us by the Nate Silvers of climate science. And how have we reacted? Like a nation of Peggy Noonans. We don't want to believe it. It feels too scary to be true. So we dismiss it as extreme or alarmist. Some of us even dismiss the whole thing as a hoax. The vibrations just don't feel right. And so, in a national election season filled with great clashes of vision and purpose, climate change was scarcely mentioned. But, as shell-shocked Republican pundits can tell you, reality always bats last. We will listen to the science and take action, or we will lose this contest. And this loss will be permanent and irreversible. When it comes to the global climate, there are no recounts. David Roberts writes for the environmental news service, grist.org. Just ahead, how the twists and turns of Washington's fiscal showdown could result in a tax on carbon. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For years, there's been talk of a tax on carbon pollution as a way to fight global warming. But it's gotten little traction until recently, when both conservative and liberal economists have argued that a carbon tax could help cut the federal deficit and keep other taxes low. Joining us to discuss all this is Harvard economist Joe Aldi, a former aide to President Obama. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Professor Aldi, we asked you to come in because there seems to be all this excitement now in Washington about the prospect of a carbon tax. There have been a series of meetings, and recently there was a standing room only meeting at the American Enterprise Institute, which is known for being fairly conservative and skeptical of the whole notion of dealing with climate issues. Why is Washington suddenly so interested in a carbon tax? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why Washington is interested in a carbon tax. One is that if you paired it with uh, reducing tax rates, you could actually make our tax system more efficient. I think also it's just a function of the math, that when you look at the alternatives to raising revenues or cutting spending in the tax and fiscal reform debate, there are a lot of actually not very palatable alternatives. And all of a sudden, the carbon tax looks more appealing when you compare it in magnitude, say, to letting the payroll tax increase by 2%. People have talked about the reduction in spending on defense and on entitlements. It's also on par in terms of the home mortgage interest deduction, which some people say if we got rid of the home mortgage interest deduction, that would help close the budget deficit and deal with our long-term debt problems. None of those are easy options. And I think when you look at the potential revenue that a carbon tax can raise, that looks more appealing than having to go down some of these other avenues. So explain to us the concept of a carbon tax. How would this work? So the basic idea of a carbon tax is to say that all the sources of carbon dioxide, uh, the most important greenhouse gas, uh, would actually have to bear the cost that they impose on the global environment. So you would actually impose a tax for every uh, ton of carbon dioxide that's emitted when we burn a ton of coal, we burn natural gas, or we burn oil and petroleum products. So where in the world has a carbon tax uh, been used so far? So we've seen it in a number of places. A number of uh, northern European countries have actually had a carbon tax on the books and in place dating back to the early 1990s. 
So Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Denmark have all had carbon taxes in their uh, energy system. Some of the carbon taxes uh, range anywhere from $20 to $100 a ton of CO2, uh, which are actually quite meaningful and I think in some cases larger than what we would consider here in the United States. I think most relevant when we think about it in the context of the current fiscal environment is what British Columbia implemented in 2008. The province of British Columbia imposed a carbon tax and they used all the revenues to reduce existing household taxes on, uh, for family income and business taxes, about a 50-50 split between families and businesses. They've ramped the tax up. It's now $30 a ton of CO2. So they set at the beginning a schedule where the price would increase over time. But every year they take all the revenues they don't increase the size of the government. They're actually saying, we're going to reduce the taxes that families and businesses pay. And it's had a pro-growth impact. And I think that's one of the important things when we think about this in fiscal reform, is that by raising the revenues in a carbon tax, by putting a tax on something bad like pollution, we can reduce taxes on things that are good, like the income that families earn and the income that, that businesses earn. So how successful has the carbon tax been in places like British Columbia? Well, you've actually seen their emissions go down. You've seen their consumption of uh, petroleum actually go down relative to other parts of Canada. Even if the price starts out modest at the beginning, if you show the schedule of how the price will increase over time, when businesses are making investments, when a family's thinking about buying a new car or buying a new home, they can take this into account in their planning. And that means they'll make sort of prudent investments in the energy efficiency or in alternative energy sources that help reduce their emissions over time. Professor Alda, you're an economist, so help us with some math here. How could a carbon tax help reduce this enormous deficit we have? So I was at this conference in Washington that discussed a carbon tax, and the kind of magnitude of a carbon tax that was commonly uh, raised is on the order of about $100 billion or $150 billion a year. This would be associated with a tax that would increase the price of gasoline, maybe 15 cents a gallon. So it's something people would actually see. But if you actually raise the tax on the order of 100 to $150 billion over a year, over a decade, that's more than a trillion dollars. When you look at the kinds of proposals on the table to reduce taxes, to shore up the long-term deficit outlook, having a trillion-dollar piece of the pie there, if you will, that helps make all the math add up is going to be really important. Carbon tax would inevitably mean you know, higher price at the pump, uh, more expensive electricity. How are people going to come to accept this? Well, I think the important thing is that we're discussing a carbon tax in the context of what will be a very large tax and fiscal deal. And so when one says, well, look, I'm going to be paying a little bit more for gasoline or a little bit more for electricity, it may be in the context of a deal that also keeps uh, the income tax rates for the vast majority of Americans at the level we've enjoyed over the past decade. Whereas if we don't do anything, they go up on January 1. So it's recognizing that there are going to be these trade-offs, and a lot of people will find that on net they'll be better off if they face lower rates of tax on their income, even if that means they pay a little bit more for the uh, more emission-intensive, energy-intensive uh, consumption they undertake. Some folks will say, though, this is a regressive tax, especially for very poor people who wouldn't have the benefits of other reduced tax rates. If you don't pay tax already, and the price of gasoline goes up because of the carbon tax, it hurts you. How, how do you address that? Well, I, I think you know, there are a number of ways in which one can try to mitigate these concerns. I'll note that in 2009, several Republicans in the House introduced a carbon tax bill, one of whom was actually uh, recently elected to be uh, the junior senator from Arizona, uh, Jeff Flake. 
in that bill, they were concerned about the impacts of a carbon tax on the elderly, on people who collected Social Security. So cutting the payroll tax doesn't really benefit you if you're retired. They actually would take some of the revenues from their carbon tax and increase the benefits that would be paid out to Social Security. And what about somebody who's living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, you know, a young person who's got a very low-income job, maybe working in a fast-food restaurant, needs to put gas in that car to get to that job. He's not going to get Social Security, doesn't even need to pay taxes. All he sees is the price going up. Well, well let's be clear, though, that that person who's working a uh, minimum wage may not be paying income taxes, but that person is paying payroll taxes. One could actually look at using a carbon tax in part to reduce the tax on labor which a lot of economists would say, hey, that would actually be good for jobs. It'd be good for the economy if we reduce the taxes on labor. And so even if you're not paying income taxes every April, you're paying with every paycheck, your employer is withholding your payroll tax. So there's a way in which you can actually help out even those individuals uh, by the way you take the carbon tax revenues and bring them back into the economy. Takes a long time to get things done in Washington. I'm guessing this doesn't happen in the lame duck session we're looking at over the next couple of weeks and the next few weeks. You know, it's one of these things where um, sometimes it, it takes a while for the impossible to actually become plausible and then becoming inevitable. Sometimes it happens very quickly. I'm probably not going to go to Vegas and bet on it happening in the lame duck, but it depends on how these, uh, these talks evolve. I think it's probably more likely that we'll do a, a short-term fix in the lame duck, but we'll probably structure it in a way in which uh, we're going to see a bigger, longer-term, more robust agreement, hopefully in 2013. How much do you think Superstorm Sandy has affected the debate on the carbon tax? You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. When I uh, talked to a friend about some of the images we saw from New York and New Jersey, he actually said, these pictures remind me of Bangladesh after a bad monsoon season. Like, just seeing this unbelievable amount of destruction, the destruction of the, of the roads and the bridges and the infrastructure and, and houses completely wiped out. And, and I think it's important to really say we know climate change can actually impose real damages to us here in the United States. And whether we think that Sandy was the function of climate change or not, we do know from the best science that's out there that storms like Sandy are going to become more common. Being able to say, wait, if we don't do anything about this, we're going to see more storms like Sandy. We're going to see more droughts like what we've been experiencing here in the United States in the last couple of years. I think that actually will create more interest for people to say, well, what can we do about this? You know, how can we take action? And being able to sort of identify some of the, the policy tools that are at our disposal, I think will encourage the public to say, you know what, let's try that idea. Let's see if we can actually do that, make a difference in terms of how we produce and consume our energy, and, and recognize we can do this in a way that's actually good for our economy. Joe Aldi is an economist who teaches at Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Thanks so much for coming in, Joe. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. The cheapest energy is the energy never used, and that's an incentive to seal up houses to get rid of drafts. But you can't see leaks, and the conventional blower tests that are used to find them can be expensive and annoying. Now there's a revolution in draft detection, and it's called thermal imaging. A heat-sensing camera can quickly and cheaply snap a thermal picture that reveals heat loss. 
Where a house is well insulated, the image glows a cool blue. And warm red or even white shows up where heat is escaping. Thermal images of homes are now being created in many states, and Massachusetts householders are among the leaders in checking them out and taking action. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer has the story from a street famous for reenacting the start of another revolution more than 200 years ago. Every April, Paul Revere gallops from Boston out west through Arlington to warn the Minutemen of the approaching army. The Redcoats are coming, he shouts. Well, this fine November day, the Weatherizers are coming to Paul Revere Road in Arlington. My name is Leah Daniels. We do our weatherization insulation services. We help people shrink their carbon footprint by insulating their walls, thereby saving them money on their uh, heating bills and heating costs. Daniels is a veteran. Her company, Green Beginnings, is one of dozens certified by MassSave, an energy-saving program funded by utilities and contractors in the Bay State. MassSave offers energy audits, retrofits, rebates, and energy-saving products and ideas to homeowners and renters. Today, Daniels and her crew are preparing to fill all the spaces in the floors and walls of this big old New England triple-decker with insulation. This means they have to pull up floorboards in the attic and pry off some shingles to drill holes in the side of the house. So these holes are about, like, two inches across, two, three inches across, right? Two and nine-sixteenths, to be exact. (laughs) <laughs> Two and nine sixteenths, and that's so you can uh, shove in the, the hose with the insulation. Correct. The hose is wide and white. It snakes along the ground from a large grey hopper in Daniel's van and up through a window into the attic, where the crew is already blowing the fluffy grey insulation into the gaps between the joists. It's ground up newspaper. All the old newspapers that you don't read go to this company and they chop it down to really, 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 really fine. So when it gets into the wall, it dense packs itself so that it gives you a thermal barrier from the outside air temperature to the inside air temperature. Part of what persuaded the homeowners to improve their insulation was a thermal image of their house. Pasim Yetinen is CEO of a company called Sagewell that provides these images. You can think of it as, as a Google Street View, except in measuring heat coming out of the building. So we have anywhere from four to five pictures, or sometimes more, of your house from the street and what it shows is the heat escaping from the building or through the windows, the doors, the basement, wherever heat comes out. The images of this house showed plenty of room for saving energy and cash. But that wasn't the only thing that persuaded the homeowners, Steve Simon and Fran Keebler, to call in the energy-saving team today. Well, I'm a person who always feels cold, so I would love to have the thermostat nice and high and toasty all the time, but I realize that's not good for our bills or the environment. Her husband will let her do that. (laughs) So, Stephen, were the bills as a part of the incentive to get it done? I think the bills, yes, was a factor. I think looking at the pictures certainly were a factor. And I think looking at overall, when you study the the incentives that are available to the homeowner, I think it's a no-brainer decision. I think you make the money back pretty quickly. And you have a warm, cozy house as well. After the crew finished the insulation, Sagewell took some new thermal views. Mietinen lined up a couple of computers to show Fran and Steve the post and pre-insulation pictures. The walls on the second floor that was not insulated Mm. are bright on the top, and as the uh, insulation had been sagging, it gets cooler and cooler on the bottom of that wall. And you also, you had a couple, at least one window, a storm window that was open there, which was easy to to fix. (laughs) 
I must say the pictures do give you great incentive to keep your storm windows down. They, they, they very much work. So now when we look at the uh, post-insulation images, what you'll see is that the walls are considerably cooler. Now you see a lot more blue, where you used to see a lot more orange, which indicated a higher temperature. So the walls are considerably cooler now. So now you've seen the, as it were, the before and after. What's your reaction? I'm impressed. I think it's a very powerful tool to give you the incentive to do it to begin with. Clearly, you can see the results. It's fabulous. That reaction would please Sue Kaplan. She's the acting director of energy efficiency at Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources and something of a fan of thermal imaging. The different colors will point your eye right to uh, where your dollars are more or less flying out of your building. And, you know, it's one of the things that we're testing to see whether it's as powerful and in motivator as we think it may be. The Department of Energy Resources has a grant from the Department of Energy and the federal government to test how well thermal imaging contributes to people's interest in investing in their homes so that their bills can potentially decrease. Kaplan says the results aren't in yet, but Passi Mietinen says his company has seen a lot of interest in the images. They now have pictures of over 400,000 houses in Massachusetts and each night add another 10 to 20,000 buildings to that total. The images are available free to householders on Sagewell's website. He expects to have thermal pictures of most of the colder states in the country in a couple of years. As for Massachusetts, he says 15% of people getting energy audits now do so after visiting his website and seeing where they're losing heat. I wanted to see for myself, so he brought his imaging van round to my house and we went for a drive with the company's energy efficiency analyst, Jennifer Mussoff. It's a lot different to look at a thermal image than it is to look at a normal picture that you might take with your camera or yes, your smartphone. Yes, obviously so, so different because you've got the blue houses and the black sky. And mm -hmm. Each temperature reading is given a color representation. And can you capture these as you just drive past at 30 Absolutely. miles an hour? We're capturing right now. You know, it's New England. A lot of people have trees and, and shrubs in their front yard. For example, this house on our right now has a lot of bushes so that you can't see through. We can't see through fences. We can't see through trees. Absolutely can't see through windows. But she did have an image of my house and showed it to me. And you can see that there is quite a bit of insulation in the fact that you can see the studs and the pattern of the beams that surround the insulation itself. But overall, I would have to say that the front view of your house shows so much insulation is, is there that you're doing quite well. Which is a relief, as we paid to get the work done. And it has paid off in lower heating bills. Indeed, Massachusetts Efficiency Chief Sue Kaplan says each dollar invested in insulation and other improvements returns $4 to the householder, and the push to save energy in the state is getting results. We have been ranked both last year and this year as the most energy efficient state in the country, and that's not only the policies but the level of investments and the level of savings. Still, people often need a push to decide to actually get the job done. And the pictures, with the bright oranges and reds and whites showing where you're heating the atmosphere outside your home, can have that effect for many folks. Passim Yetanen has an apt analogy. What we tend to say is that if you had a water leak in your basement, of course you would call a plumber, but if you have a heat leak in your building, you don't see it until you look at it in a thermal image. 
And a lot of people, when they see the imagery of their house, they have one of these moments where they go, wow, I, I really need to do something about this right now. And that's how a lot of insulation takes place. And that pays off for homeowners and for contractors like Leah Daniels. Once, you know, you start to turn the heat on and you get the first bill, everybody's like, oh, my God. Have you done your own house? <laughs> Amazing you say that. Uh, yeah. Uh, my roommate um, handed me the gas bill one afternoon when I came home and told me he was going to refuse to pay this bill till we insulated the house. So yes, my own house is done, and our gas bill went from about seven hundred dollars a month down to about two and a quarter, two fifty. Um, so he's happy. <laughs> well, I guess you're happy. Too. Yeah, we get along better. <laughs> <laughs> Which just could be one of the best arguments there is for taking action, for living on Earth. I'm Helen Palmer. Check out some of the thermal images and more at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, a record criminal fine for BP for the Gulf oil spill is not the end of the story. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Oil giant BP will pay a record $4.5 billion fine to settle criminal charges related to the 2010 oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. The company agreed to plead guilty to 11 counts of felony misconduct after the Macondo well explosion that killed 11 workers and spewed nearly 5 million barrels of oil into the Gulf. BP will also plead guilty to misdemeanors under the Clean Water and Migratory Bird Treaty Acts and a felony count of obstruction of Congress. Most of the company's felony charges relate to misinterpreting pressure readings that showed leaks in the wellhead of the Deepwater Horizon rig. In addition, two senior BP supervisors face trial for manslaughter related to the deaths of the 11 workers. Joining us by phone now from Beijing is William Riley. He co-chaired the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Hello. Good day, Steve. So what's your take on this settlement of the criminal charges uh, with BP? With anything of this sort, the government wants to establish something of a, of a warning, a precedent, uh, and send a signal and genuinely uh, meet out some punishment. I think all of those objectives were met in the um, agreement that's just been reached and the findings that have been reached. The negative pressure test, which is the basis for most of the criminal counts, certainly was misinterpreted, and uh, it very clearly appears that that was negligently so. One of the two people who was monitoring the negative pressure test did not survive the uh, disaster, and so there are certain things that are not known about it. But uh, there was an indication. There were two negative pressure tests. There was an indication from one of gas uh, rising in the drill pipe, and uh, that was ignored in favor of a second test, which also was conducted a somewhat different way, which indicated no change in pressure. So I think the basis for the conclusions is sound, given what the commission concluded, and uh, I'm not surprised. 
So this is what you expected? Yes, I think given the, uh, there, are, there are a couple of things in there that uh, surprised me. The obstruction of Congress finding is based upon uh, misrepresentation of the flow rate. And uh, that surprised me a little bit because it struck me there was much confusion about the flow rate and uncertainty about it on the part of the company and certainly all of the government, which uh, led to uh, a lot of concern and I think some loss of confidence on the part of the public in the government and in the company in the early days of the spill. And it wasn't entirely clear to me that uh, that was anything more than the failure to have the kind of technology that would allow you to make that determination. But it was certainly a very important uh, mistake, and BP has paid the price for it. I have no question in the future, and we've been assured by the head of the USGS, Marsh McNutt, that it would not take more than a couple of weeks to determine the flow rate if there were, Lord forbid, another accident of that sort. So it's a $4 billion settlement. It surpasses the $1.3 billion that was levied against Pfizer for marketing fraud uh, in, back in 2009. The biggest criminal settlement against a company, the right size? Well, in any action of uh, this sort, I'm sure the Justice Department is concerned about proportion. And this was a wholly disproportionate accident. We've not had anything like this happen before. It did take lives. The Exxon Valdez disaster, which involved uh, $1.1 billion in uh, settlements against the company, did not involve loss of life, and certainly it involved much less disruption. It occurred, of course, in a less populated area. So uh, I don't think this is inconsistent with the uh, very extensive damage that was caused, the disruption of people's lives. Some 47,000 people were involved in the cleanup, and many, many more suffered loss of income, some loss of business. Uh, I think that uh, this is uh, quite an appropriate reflection of the seriousness of what occurred. How much does this reflect care about the environment? The migratory bird species count is a clear signal, as is the allocation of a significant amount of the uh, penalties that are being paid over five years to the Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Uh, I think uh, it very strongly uh, includes an element of acknowledgement that the environment suffered just as people did. We're getting some feedback from the Gulf Coast region among the locals that the BP is getting off lightly. Uh, they're not too happy about it. What would you say to them? This is not the end of the uh, affair. Obviously, uh, civil claims still exist against the company. Those uh, have to be settled. And um, one will await the determination of those negotiations, which I have heard that settlements are relatively um, near, but uh, there is clearly more to come. Of course, there are other companies involved with this. I'm thinking of Transocean. I'm thinking of Halliburton. What does this criminal settlement with BP suggest might happen with those companies? Well, I I won't really comment on the likelihood of any kind of criminal uh, charges against other companies, but just to say that the commission did conclude that uh, significant mistakes were made by the other two principal companies, the service companies, and um, no doubt that they will be uh, involved with uh, something going forward with the government. Bill Riley, what does, uh, what does this criminal settlement with BP tell us about uh, the company's future for drilling in this country? Well, you know, we were asked quite often, I was asked in Alaska, whether BP should be precluded from continuing to operate on the North Slope in Alaska. And I said what I believe then and believe even more strongly now, that Companies learn from their mistakes. Some of the safest companies have had their disasters and um, gotten to be models, model citizens for safety and environmental concern and protection. 
I think uh, Exxon Mobil, after Exxon Valdez, went through a transformation that uh, has left it in the minds of many oil industry figures and others among the safest of companies. So BP clearly has uh, set about to have policies now that go beyond regulations in many areas, and I think they've taken this to heart. So I think that one can expect that uh, BP will do everything that could be expected of a company in the future to comply with the law and to exceed, in fact, uh, some of the requirements under, under the regulations. Well, thank you for taking this time with me today. Very pleased to do it. This closes an important chapter in that very sad history of the accident that occurred in 2010. Former EPA Administrator William Riley co-chaired the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. When it comes to adaptation, Mother Nature knows best. It makes sense, then, that mimicking nature may be the best way to cope with all sorts of challenges. Here to talk with us is Anna Maria Frankich, a fellow at the Biomimicry Institute at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and director of the Green Harbors Project. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi. Thank you for having me. Just for a basic explainer, what is biomimicry and why should we uh, focus on it? Biomimicry really utilizes biological models to evolve sustainable solutions to environmental, technological, engineering, and design challenges that we have, and to not only learn from nature, but also learn about nature and its complexity to address our problems today is just like a, almost like a common sense. Uh, give me an example of uh, biomimicry. When we are now building anything in our everyday life, we use glues to combine different structures. Most of those glues are based on formaldehyde, which is very poisonous. Uh, so we are now actually using the same structures that we learned from shellfish that are using glues, organic glues that are harder than any glues humans ever were able to create. Uh, what's the secret of those organic glues? I know trying to get barnacles off the bottom of a boat is really a, an ordeal. Yes, and when you want to collect shellfish or specifically oysters, you need to use a very hard hammer to detach them. When we talk about this organic glue, we are trying to use chemicals that are soluble in waters that are not harmful to nature because that's the key life principle is that nature produces chemicals that are not harmful to themselves or next generation. Uh, how can you use biomimicry to address questions of storm surges? I mean, what we saw around Superstorm Sandy in the uh, New Jersey, New York area uh, reminds us that the natural marshes and stuff, which tend to protect against surges, are gone. That's uh, a question that in the last 10 years, Biomimicry has been working with uh, designers and architects and landscape architects to create uh, what we call almost like a soft structures or living structures along our hard structured uh, harbors. Because uh, what we created in our urban harbors is like a very firm uh, line between the water and the living uh, coastal areas and our built harbors. And very often those lines are very concrete and straight. I always tell my students, if you find a 
straight line in the nature, call me, because everything in the nature has a reason how it formed and designed and created the strategies that will, in a very long time, for millions of years, support their function and, and becoming more resilient and sustainable. And how can we now build our structures that can biomimic uh, the type of salt marshes and uh, shellfish beds and eelgrass beds? And that could maybe help us also in the biomimicry understanding, how can we now build structures that could support us in the long run and also be more adaptable for the environmental changes that we are constantly experiencing more and more so. Anna Maria Frankisch is a Biomimicry Institute Fellow and Director of the Green Harbors Project at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the lessons of nature have paid off in some remarkable products already. Think airplanes or Velcro, for example. And a unique water harvesting beetle inspired one of Professor Frankich's former students, Deckard Sorensen, to start a business. This beetle, the Namib desert beetle, lives in an area of the world that only gets a half inch of rainfall every year. However, every morning this beetle climbs to the top of a sand dune, sticks its back up to the wind, and drinks 12% of its weight in water. So we use nanotechnology to mimic this beetle's back so that we too can pull water from the air. Tell me, what exactly are the physics here? How does it get water out of this air? It has uh, super hydrophobic and super hydrophilic regions on its back, and micro droplets of water condense on these super hydrophilic regions or water-loving regions. These micro droplets outgrow the ridge, will hit the water-hating region, and then jut offwards, aggregating all of the other droplets downwards. So what did you take what you learned from, about the Namib beetle and turn it into a business? Uh, we realized that if we can use air as a primary source of water and realize that there are 3.9 quadrillion gallons of water in the Earth's atmosphere, that we can somehow have a way to tap into uh, one of the largest reservoirs of water, and that being the air. Tell me exactly what you do here. I understand you have nanotechnology involved. Basically, we apply this in a surface coating and then use a fan to pass the air from the environment through, expose this air and clean the air, and pass it over our surface coatings, and the moisture that is in the air uh, is extracted. So you'd have a self-filling water bottle then, huh? Uh, yes, that's our end goal, um, is to create a reusable water bottle that fills itself, and we see this being applicable to anything from marathon runners to people in third world countries, um, because we really realize that water is such a large issue in the world today, and we want to try and alleviate this problem with a cost-efficient solution. Now, what about plants that uh, need more water uh, than is available? How might this system work for them? We're actually uh, investigating a type of device that can be used for drip irrigation, and we are looking to incorporate this in uh, greenhouses or green roofs in the immediate future. And then later on, we want to see how large we can scale this technology up to supply maybe farms or larger agricultural goals. So how much energy is required to keep the system going? You say you have to blow the air over your special nano mm -hmm. uh, material. It's very low energy. Uh, I can't give you direct number right now, but it's low enough that we've run all of our tests off solar panels and by use of a rechargeable battery. What's fascinating about your technology is, is that the energy comes from moving the air, so something that's moving like a car or a sailboat would 
be able to extract water with no really additional energy cost. Yep, we uh, we actually see the maritime environment is uh, really a very large market for us because humidity is actually constantly regenerated over a large body of water, and then we can pull that humidity from the air to possibly uh, support people that take long trips on yachts or provide a sort of potable water source that can be run off a solar panel um, while at sea. So, how much water can you make using this technology? The metric of our surface coating is about three liters per square meter per hour, and that is based off 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 75% relative humidity. So what's your running time for getting your Beetle-inspired water systems up and running? When can I get a self-filling water bottle? We're raising our seed round of financing right now, um, and we expect to be in the market sometime mid-2014. Deckart Sorensen is a recent graduate of Boston College and co-founder of NBD Nano. Thanks so much, Deckart. All right. Thank you for having me. Yes, that's the music we play when we talk about birds in Bird Note. Today, though, we have another example of mimicry creeping into our Bird Note, as Mary McCann explains. Doesn't that sound like a bird? Actually, we're hearing a Douglas squirrel, a pint-sized chestnut red native of forests from the Sierra Nevadas of California northward to coastal British Columbia and southeast Alaska. They waste no time in telling you and other squirrels you're in their territory, particularly if you're near their central larder of conifer cones. Here's a pair discussing our presence right now. The Scottish explorer and botanist David Douglas surely heard them in 1825 when he traveled up the Columbia River with trappers for the Hudson's Bay Company. He came to gather specimens of Pacific Northwest plants, including seeds of the large evergreen tree that today also bears his name. If you're lucky, in summer, you'll hear young squirrels racing up and down the tree trunks. Listen! You can hear their claws as they scamper on their vertical playground. In fall, you might hear the sound of cones rocketing out of those trees as Douglas squirrels gather them for winter. And what about those large, mostly silent squirrels that we see just about everywhere? Those are eastern gray squirrels, interlopers when in the land of the Douglas. I'm Mary McCann. Check out the pictures of Douglas squirrels at our website, LOE.org. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.